0: Good morning, One Church. Y'all doing well? Fantastic. Um, before we get diving into the sermon, I just want to let you guys know, last night we had our Modern Warfare 3 tournament at the church offices, and it was amazing. We had Buffalo Wild Wings cater in 600 wings for us. Did I say it was amazing? Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. We got started about 6, 15, 6, 20 and we got done at about 10 o'clock. And uh, we had about 20 people playing one another. And uh, uh, I want to let you know, the first round, I got the most points. Um, and I, I, I was feeling pretty good about myself. And then we went to the next round, like the the, the lowest people who, who scored, you know, they got cut. And then we went to the next round. And then I started doing not as well. And then, But I made that cut. And then I went to the next round and didn't do as well as at all. Um, And I blame a couple people um, because the farther you went into it, people started getting better. All right. In fact, uh, at the end, the last round, I didn't even make the cut. I wasn't even in it. I was on the sidelines going like this with wings. And uh, and I had my first blazing wings last night, which was amazing. I'm still paying for it. But um, uh, the top four, let me kind of let you guys know who that was. It was Walt Edmondson, my 13-year-old son. I had uh, uh, Andrew Streeter, um, and then Garrett Beyer, and uh, the last but not least, Rob Deerman. And uh, it was fun, and we just had a great time. And I just want to say, again, thanks for Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, they did this event totally free, charge for us and donated it. So I would encourage you guys, if you've not been to beat dubs yet, please go uh, because they are supporting our church and they're supporting so many other things in the community. And I just want to say thank you so much to the staff and Perry there. All right, now we're finishing up our series entitled Come Home, Coming Home. And you know, one of the things we've been talking about this series is we've been looking at one of the most popular stories found in the Bible. In fact, does anybody remember what story we're talking about? The prodigal son, exactly right, and you know the story. I mean, this is our third week into it, and the story goes a little something like this. It says a man had two sons, and it's those two sons that we've been talking about up to this point. The younger son, uh, he was the hellraiser, He was the one who was uh, kind of he he wanted to be the the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He was a kind of a party waiting to happen. And uh, he ends up telling his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your money. Give it to me. Give me my inheritance. And the dad does something very unthinkable in this story, and he gives him the money. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Then we talked about last week, we talked, and and, and let me say this, that first week when we looked at the younger son, this is one of the things that we looked at, and this is one of our big ideas and one of our thrusts, is the younger son thought that his dad was trying to keep him from a, a real awesome true life. In fact, and we talked about that first week, that that's how a lot of people view God in the church. That there's something out there that the church and God doesn't want me to experience, and God's not about fun, and God's trying to keep me from a really good life, or, or having fun on Friday or Saturday nights. And that was the mindset of the younger brother. And we learned in this story that that's not what God thinks at all. God's not trying to keep us from fun, but one of the things that the prodigal, the younger son, learned in this story is that the fun never lasts, does it? The high never lasts. Um, The party never lasts. There's always the next morning. There's always the downer after that high. There's always the downer after that addiction. There's always, you always go searching for more. And it's the law of diminishing returns. You always need to get more and higher and more and higher. So that you can experience that euphoria. To take away the pain. That's what we looked at the the first week. Second week, we looked at the older son. That was last week. And we looked at how the older son never left. And this, uh, this older son, uh, I mean, was still didn't have a great relationship with his dad. And we looked at, it doesn't matter if you break all the rules or if you keep all the rules, you can still have a busted relationship with your Heavenly Father. Because... The younger son, he rebels and he throws it all away and thumbs his nose at God. And we know he has a broken relationship. But there are a lot of people in a lot of different churches who have the older brother syndrome, a hard heart, an entitlement, and they're angry. And for some of you, you may have the reason why you left church is because your church was kind of like that. And you started equating, well, in order to be a Christian, then you have to kind of hate. And that's not what the heart of our God is at it all. God is love. That's what God's Word says. But it's so many times, us Christians who've kind of been on the farm for a long time get into this, this entitlement mindset. We start pointing fingers, and it just gets really nasty, and it gets really angry. And our big idea last week, is many times, is that we shouldn't equate religious activity with spiritual transformation. Shouldn't do it, all right? Now, today, we're looking at the hero of the story. We're looking at the third person in the story, and it is the dad. It is the father. Now, as we turn there to Luke chapter 15, I just want to remind everybody the context of how and where Jesus told the story. In fact, it's going to be on your screens, or you can go on your smartphones and download version. It says this... Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, Jesus. But the Pharisees, these are the religious people, and the teachers of the law muttered. Everybody mutter for me this morning. Mm, mm, you got a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. You hear muttering all the time. Muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Now remember, the wild rebellious child is representative in the story of the tax collectors and the sinners. And then you have the uh, Pharisees, the religious goody-two-shoes. They're represented as the older brother in this story. But that, those two things, even though it's the parable of the prodigal sons, because both of them have a busted relationship with their heavenly father, what we're going to be looking at today is the dad, because he's the hero. Now here's the thing. The hero in the story, the Father, represents our God, our Heavenly Father. And as we dive into this, a lot of people have a lot of weird distortions about who God is, right? Let me just tell you a couple of them. In fact, very interesting. If you have a distortion about what you believe God is, it will always there will always be a corresponding consequence. Let me give you a couple examples. The first one is this. If you believe that every time something bad happens to you, God's trying to get you back, or you did something wrong, so God's like, and he's putting the thumb screws to you, then there's going to be a consequence to your distortion because God's really not like that. And let me tell you what, you what how that's going to manifest itself. You're really never ever going to get really close to God. You're never ever going to have a relationship that is characterized by Intimacy. You're always going to feel really far apart. Let me give you another one. For, for others of you, um, you're, um, you think that every time you pray that God has to fulfill that prayer. <clears throat> and you pray for healing and God's going to heal and he's always going to do your will. Well, there's a problem with that because Jesus said, not my will, but your, your will be done. Exactly right. So, but if we have this idea that God has to come through every time, then here's one of the things, and this is the kicker. You're going to be disappointed, and you're going to start lacking trust trusting God, and your faith is going to start waning because God is not doing what you want to do. All right. So there's a corresponding consequences to your distortion. And today we're going to be looking at a big distortion of our Heavenly Father. This is in verses 11 through 13. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, now I want you to remember that, a few days later. It didn't happen immediately. But a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. Now here's the idea. Let me unpack this. This younger brother is saying, I want my inheritance. Now usually when somebody gets an inheritance, what's happened? Somebody dies. Imagine... If you're still alive and somebody's saying, hey, I want it, give it to me, give it to me. I mean, how disrespectful is that? But the father in this story agrees. Now think about this. This guy, the father, is very, very wealthy. So he's having to take time to liquidate his assets. He's got cattle, he's got sheep, he's got oxen, he's got uh, crops in the field, he's got all this. So he's having to sell some stuff to be able to get his boy this money. All right? And the younger son always gets about one third of the entire state. The older son gets two thirds, right? Uh, If you're an older son in here, you're thinking, that's really fair. If you're a younger son, you're going, man, that's jacked up, right? But this guy doesn't care about that. That's just how culture was. He just wants it now. So he's taking, the dad is having to take some time after a few days to liquidate his assets. He's having to take the cattle to market, he's having to sell some land. So that he can get his son the money up to this point. Now here's the thing. And the son grabs it all and leaves. And there's a huge principle here. Do you know this? That our Heavenly Father, if you want to walk out on Him, do you know what? He'll let you walk out. He'll let you walk. I mean... We've seen this so much this year when Ryan taught about the um the uh the the rich young ruler. God will let you walk away. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you were in church. You had a drug problem when you were growing up. You were drugged to church on Sunday morning, you were drugged to church on Sunday night and Wednesday night, and you hated it. And you went to church, you went to church, you went to church, and you said this, when I turn 18, I am never going back. And you know what happened? It's exactly what happened. You turned 18 and you went, deuces. And you said, I'm gone. I can't stand church, I can't stand God, I can't stand my parents. They're old-fashioned, they're fuddy-duddy, all of this whatever. I mean, we all know, because we've all done that, many of us, haven't we? I mean, you got to college and it was crash and burn. And you did everything that your parents told you not to. And you know what? That's, that's just, it, it, unfortunately, it's a part of life. But it's a part of learning. And our Heavenly Father will let us go. He's not going to force you to stay. And here's a great principle here. Because if God forces you and me to stay, then it's not really love. It's not really love. God doesn 't keep us on the farm and we and we don 't want to be there. He gives us free will. We can walk away. We can do that. You and I can do that. The hard thing about it is when we walk away, when we realize that maybe our parents weren 't as dumb as we thought. maybe this whole old fashioned stuff really wasn't old fashioned but maybe. That's what life is about. We have to start taking the long walk back home. And that's what we find with this younger son. So this younger son takes all of his inheritance and he blows it. Verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he, what's that next word? I'm sorry, Let all skate morning. He wasted. He wasted. He wasted All his money, i.e. all his dad's money, in wild living. Now hear me, there's a Jewish custom that comes into play here. This is so very interesting. If a Jewish boy took his inheritance and squandered it all on Gentiles and wild living and parties and all this stuff, there was a custom here that if he tried to return home, if he tried to return home, the community would come out, many times as parents, but many times the entire community would come out to greet this young boy or this young girl who squandered it all. And if they tried coming back into the community, everybody in that town would take a piece of pottery and say, stop, you can't come in. That right there is what you've done to your family. That right there is what you've done to this community. And you are cut off. You're done. In fact, this Jewish ritual was called kezazah. It's going to be on your screen. Everybody say that. Kezazah. Say it again. Kezazah. Kezazah. And what that Hebrew word literally means is cutting off. And they would take this pottery... And they would pick up the broken pieces. And they said, this is what you've done to your family and to your community. You have broken relationship with us. You've broken relationship with your parents. And you are done. You're not welcome here. Don't come back. And it's this Jewish custom that was performed many times over. When a younger son or a younger daughter walked away and squandered it all. They were cut off. And this was a symbol that the relationship cannot be repaired. There's not enough glue to put this back together again. It cannot be repaired. I'm going to keep on reading. Verse 17. Look at this. The younger son in the pig pen, when he finally comes to his senses... He says to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy of being your son. I know I'm kazazah. I, I know I'm cut off. I'm not asking to come back as your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And look at this. So he returned home to his dad. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with everybody say that, and I like that. What does the father do? He runs to his son, embraces him, and kisses him. Now, at this part of the story, it's the the tax collectors and the sinners, as Jesus is telling the story, they start to cry. Because he knows, they know Jesus is talking about him. And they start crying because the father in this story ran. Now let me tell you what Middle Eastern fathers, even today, some, th- some think they never run. They just don't run. For a lot of reasons. Number one, um, no Middle Eastern dad would run in public because it's a disrespectful thing to run. They wore these long robes and they had tassels on it. And in order for them to run, they would have to pull up their robe and show some of their leg and nakedness on their leg. And they would have to pull it up so that they could run and that was a very shameful thing to do in a middle eastern culture some of you know this because you've been over there some of you know this even today the women they are many of them are covered because it's a very disgraceful thing to allow skin to be shown but yet the person in this story this wealthy landowner who had many servants as we read about in the story he runs To his dad. He picks up his robe, picks it up by the tassels, and he's running. And here's something interesting as well. I love this because another reason why Middle Eastern dads didn't run is because they were very prideful. And if they ran, they were saying, you know what? Somebody else is more important than I am. So if they were in a hurry, what they would do is they would take their servant... Or a slave, and they would say, you go run. You run to the market and get this. And the servant would run. But the dad never would run. Now here's the question. Why does the dad run in this story? Well, the reason why is because he can't stop thinking about the broken boy. This young boy of his. He's thinking, if my, if the village gets to my boy first, he's thinking this, it will mean kazaza. It will mean brokenness. It will mean shame. If they meet him at the town's edge before I get there, everybody's going to bring their pots out and they're going to smash them. And it's going to be a very disgraceful thing. And my son is going to think there is no hope of repair or brokenness or reconciliation. There's no hope and he will be cut off. And the father's saying, I have to run. I have to beat the rest of the community there because I have to let my boy know. That nothing is beyond repair. There is restoration. There is no kezazah. There is no cutting off. I love my boy. So, he picks up his robe. In, In a very uncharacteristic like way, he takes the form of one of his servants and he starts running. Because servants... Run he takes the form the dead takes the form of a servant and runs to his boy. y'all may remember this it may sound familiar, but in Philippians chapter two verse five, listen to what it says about Jesus. your attitude should be the same if that is Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature what's it say is it up that God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing? taking the very nature of a... Jesus, who was and is God, took the very nature of a servant and He runs to you. And He runs to me. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. The beautiful thing about this story is that the main character of this story, the dad, is a father who runs. And and everybody who was listening to this story, they knew, well, Middle Eastern dads, they don't run. But this one does. This one runs. And they're thinking, you know what? No Middle Eastern dad would run and no ordinary God would become an embryo. And be born of a virgin. And spend 33 years on this earth. Being humble and serving other people. And performing miracles for other people. He didn't come into this world to be served. But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And they're starting to get it. Well, if this is no ordinary dad in the story. Then our God is no ordinary God. And... The tax collectors and the sinners, the hearts are melting. And the Pharisees and the religious people, the hearts are getting hardened. You see, this is not the parable of the prodigal son. It's not the parable of the resentful older brother. This is of the parable of the father who runs. It's the story of the running father. God is so filled with love and compassion... That for you, that when you're in a distant country and you're running away from God and you've squandered it all and you've been sleeping with people and you've been doing whatever and you have track marks on your arms, you've got all of this stuff, God is the God that all it takes is for you to come back and just start moving towards Him and He will run to you. Because that is who our God is. He is a God who runs. This is amazing. All you have to do is come home. And you know what? You don't have to run to a faraway country to be far away from God. Some of you, you've been going to church forever. You may have been coming to one church for a long time. And you're serving and you're giving and you're doing all of this stuff. And you need to know this. It's just as easy for you to have a broken relationship with God. Because it's not about what we do. It's about a relationship. You can come home. You don't have to earn your way back. You don't have to feel like, i got to clean up my act. As I close, I want to read to you a story that I read for the first time in Philip Yancey's book called What's So Amazing About Grace. So here's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask everybody the lights to come down. And uh, you can bring the lights down on stage as well. That'd be great. And um, I just want you to sit back and I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture this story in your mind. A young girl grows up on a soybean farm outside of Decatur, Illinois. Her parents do not much care for the music she listens to. Or the clothes that she wears. Or the ring on her nose. She does not much care for their values or for their church. They have another argument. She locks herself in a room. When her dad knocks on the door, she screams, I hate you. She decides to run away. She decides to run far away from Illinois. And she hitches a ride to California. When she gets there... She is much lonelier than she's ever anticipated. But soon, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she has ever seen. He gives her a ride. He buys her lunch. He shows her the city. He gives her some pills to make her feel better than she's ever felt. And she wanted to feel good really, really bad. She realizes how much life and her fun have parents have been robbing her. This good life goes on for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things about what men really like. It's a side of life that she's never knew in Decatur, Illinois. The parties and the penthouses and the gifts and the glamour are like being in another world for her. And after a year, though, the first sallow signs of the illness appear. It amazes her how quickly the boss turns mean before she knows it. He turns her out onto the street. No money. No clothes. No car. No parties. She's alone. She has an addiction. She uses what she knows on the streets to get whatever money she can but she still looks so gaunt and so thin. The men she is now with are no longer wealthy. They're no longer generous. And sometimes they're even dangerous and cruel. All her money goes to support her habit. She eats whatever she can find. She sleeps on a metal grate or a park bench. But it's on that metal grate one night she wakes up. Thinking that she is hearing footsteps and always looking over her shoulder. She realizes that there's no one there, but everything looks a little different. She no longer feels like a woman of this broken world. She's a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. Her pockets are empty, her clothes are rags, her stomach is hungry. She needs a fix. Her eyes are filled with tears. Then her mind flashes to a single image. Her home. Her home in Decatur, Illinois. She remembers the summers. How the fields are so green you can hardly take it all in. The freshness of the air. The lightning bugs dancing amongst the black of the night. realizes it's December. And though it's warm in L.A., it's frigidly cold in Illinois. She wonders, can I go back? Oh God, why did I leave? My dog at home eats better than I do now. And she starts to sob. And she knows that more than ever, she wants To go home. So she gives them a call. She calls her parents. The voicemail picks up. She calls them a second time. No one answers. On the third time, she finally leaves a message and she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. It's your daughter. I was wondering about, well, I was wondering about coming. I'm going to be on a bus. It's going to pass through sometime around midnight on Tuesday. If you're not there, I'll just keep on going to New York. I just wanted to let you know. The whole time on the bus, she can't turn off the questions in her mind. She wonders if they even got the message. She wishes she'd give them more warning. She wonders if they've given up on her for dad. She keeps thinking about what she's going to say to her dad to her mom. She keeps rehearsing this little speech in her mind. Dad. Daddy. Daddy I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know it was my fault. It wasn't yours. It was mine. Can you ever forgive me? She hasn't apologized for anything in years. The bus pulls into the station And the driver says, 15 minutes, folks. That's all the time we have, 15 minutes. 15 minutes to decide her life. She looks in her little compact mirror. She tries to brush her hair and get the lipstick marks off her teeth. She looks down at her arms and she sees the needle marks and she wonders if her parents will notice. If her parents are even there. She walks into the bus terminal at one o'clock in the morning in Decatur, Illinois. Snow covers the ground. She's imagined it, a thousand different scenes in her mind. But not one of them prepares her for what she sees there because inside those concrete walls and around these plastic chairs in that little bus terminal in Decatur, Illinois, stands a group Of 40 brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And even one dog. They're all wearing goofy party hats. And blowing kazoos. And cheering for her as if she were a war hero coming home. There is a giant hand-painted sign saying, Welcome home. Taped all the way across the back wall. Standing in front of that crowd with a tear-stained face and a trembling smile is her daddy, the one whom her last words said, I hate you, the last time she saw him. She can't bring herself to even look him in the face as she starts a little speech. Daddy, I'm so sorry. It's my fault. But yet the father puts his hands on her face, raises her eyes up to his he begins to laugh and to cry so hard his whole body shakes I know he says I know it's what he used to say to her when she would cry when she was just a little tiny girl but she would skin her knee I know I know I know he says I know don't say another word my little baby girl you're gonna miss the party we have to throw a party your home